Many systems that you and I will develop will be either safety critical, business critical, or both safety critical and business critical. If I have a system, I've got a system that allows me to dispense medicine to critically ill patients in intensive ward, then that particular system A is actually safety critical. If I have a system that allows me to guide a satellite, navigate a satellite, or a system that allows me to control how airplanes land in on the landing strip, airline control systems work. Yeah, like control system. So that system is safety critical. If I have a system that, to a certain extent, looks at your valuable bank accounts and assumes that nobody goes in there and steals the little money that you've got, that is got both a business imperative and a safety imperative. And in all these phases, in all these instances, when you're developing a system, you have to make some form of trade-off. Because the notion we started off here was the fact that we are human beings and we would always make mistakes and the systems that we develop would always have faults. But because we cannot comprehensively test every system to the very last iota, because we need to bring the system in on time and because we need to bring the system in under budget, we will have to make some trade-offs based on the business and or the safety criticalness of the system that we're developing. If I'm developing a system for a library, and all I want that system to do is to allow you to be able to come and borrow a book from the library, and then when it's time for you to return it, I should send you a reminder to return that book, and so on and so forth, then the business and probably the safety criticalness of that system is not as high as the airline trafficking system that I developed, I mentioned earlier on. Okay, so in developing such a system, what are we looking at? The reliability element to it wouldn't be as high as the reliability aspect of me trying to develop in the system for an airline trafficking system, for that matter. Okay, for an airline trafficking system. And so what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do here is to, in a way, bring that library system in on time, beyond and within budget, because I'm delivering it for a local council who haven't got enough money, but would like to computerize the library system. On the other hand, and this is actually a real-life experience, if I'm developing a system for um, the Ministry of Defense, I worked with a group of my colleagues here, with a company whose name I can't mention, and we were working with a group of software engineers who had a 10-year contract to develop a system to allow the um, um, submarines, submarine navigation system, to allow a submarine to be able to <laughs> conveniently launch missile. Ten-year project. It was funded by the Ministry of Defense, so it means that to a certain extent, the money, the budget wasn't that that, that much of an issue. The government was going to pay for it, but. That system had to be exceptionally reliable because a submarine, maybe nuclear, I don't know, misfiring a missile, it's, the consequences of it are totally unheard of. Okay? So in all these in all these variety of systems that you develop as a software engineer, you always have to make a trade-off between the various attributes, either the user satisfaction, the usability of the system, 
okay? There will be liability of how many times it fails, whether I'm going to bring it in on time, and so on and so forth. And then above it all, you also have to think of the software quality imperatives. Now, if you step back a little bit and look at the software quality, when we were younger, all we considered quality to be was a reliable system. But quality measurements or quality definitions have changed a little bit to mean that sometimes quality means uh, the ease of being able to maintain the system that I built. It also means the ability to test that system comprehensively. It also means what the user really wants. Is that system really satisfying the user's uh, requirements? And, of course, it, it comes in to do reliability as well. So you have to balance all those portions or those factors that go into software quality into the building of a particular system. So here, for you to be able to do that, you must be able to understand, you must be able to understand the whole spectrum of faults that occur in the cost of you building a system. So there are terminologies, like things to do with faults. People would use the word fault in place of defect, in place of bug, and in place of error. Now, if you go to the scientific symposiums that we go to, you end up having to argue with people about the meaning of a fault, an error, a bug, or a defect. For our purposes, for what we do here, a fault, error, bug, or what do you call a defect, are those imperfections in the code that you have written that would cause the system to fail. To certain point in time. Okay? And then we have to look at things like failure. Failure is when the system stops operating in the manner that you expect it to be. And the notion of reliability is a factor of failure. A system that is less likely to fail is probably a system, or definitely a system, that we think is more reliable. So the, the terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but you have to be able to understand what they mean and what they represent. Now, first come from an error, a mistake that you've made. Okay, you made a mistake in the, what you call it, system that you're building, and that's when you have a fault in the software that you've written. And that fault would cause uh, system failure, and that would decrease the <coughs> Sometimes you may be doing the wrong things, but you may be doing them right. You may be initializing your variables, you may be changing your parameters to suit a new condition, okay, or you may be changing the structure of a particular variable to suit a new condition, but you may be doing it at the wrong time. Other times, you may be doing the right things. You may be setting the size of a particular buffer, but, but you may be doing those right things in the wrong way, okay? So the combination of things, these are the things that lead to the errors that we have. And it goes without saying that it's easy for us all to make mistakes, but it's hard to find the faults or the mistakes that we make by testing, dynamic analyzing of the project or the system. It's very hard to make to find all the faults that we make by testing. So, in order to help us come to grips with this, we use a lot of static analysis, and static analysis takes for those of you who are in the industry, it takes a form of inspections, peer reviews, and so on and so forth. Static analysis usually are good at finding faults 
are before you deploy a system. And they are also good at finding some predetermined forms. So these are forms that we know programmers make on a daily basis when you write a program. So some of these forms are to things to do with data forms. For example, you may use a variable without initializing it, okay? And things to do with control forms. You have written a piece of code whereby there are aspects that are conditions in that code that will never be met, okay? And there are some, sometimes you write a code and there are um, loops that probably never, never end, or loops that are never executed. And then forms to do with input and output variables. You can output a variable twice, okay, without assigning any variable to it. And then the interface form that we talked about. You are passing a parameter to another module, and the size, the module is expecting the parameter of the same size, you're passing the parameter of a different size. And then things to do with storage management forms. You have <coughs> unassigned pointers. If trying to store some data somewhere, but the variable that holds the address of where you're trying to store that data is corrupt, and so you try to actually store the data somewhere away from where it's supposed to be stored. These are some of the static analysis checks that you can use inspections to find out. And these days, a lot of companies will actually use um, dynamic analyzers. And um, if you see dynamic analyzer called Lint, okay, and Lint, once you bring your program, you pass it through Lint, and Lint will try and pick up all these uh, common forms that people write or make in the right programs. So we are not that far behind yet. <coughs> the common forms that we make, a lot of these will be taken care of by some static analysis checks. Also, we have testing workbenches. So we have automated the way we do things. So in this example we have up here, or this diagram we have up here, you have a whole suite of things to allow you to test the program as exhaustively as you want to. Okay, you have, you have um, a program that has been tested. And you have a simulator, something that simulates the actual operation. And then you have a dynamic analyzer that will check the source code and come up with an execution report. Okay? Sometimes we also have things that would look at the specification of the code or the functions that you actually coded and extract some test data for you. That test data will be used to actually test the system. And at the end of all these things, what you're trying to do is you're trying to compare the results that you expect from that particular piece of code if you wrote it and the actual results that you are getting. So the prediction, this is the actual that puts you into a position whereby you put a test report and say, well, I have actually tested the system and I have found like all these words and I think that we are in a position to move on and do some more detailed checking. So when you write a program and you make a mistake and whatnot, because we know that systems have to be reliable before we ship them to the user, we do a couple of things. We check for the common forms using static analysis and then we test them dynamically using a whole testing workbench. Right? But despite all these things, despite all these things, what you do not do, or what you are unable to do, is to actually test the system when it is actually being used by the user in their particular environment. So why do forms occur? Now, sit back a, bit, a little bit. These are all the problems that we talked about. 
type of foods that can occur, and so on and so forth. So why haven't we found ways of getting rid of them if we are using dynamic analysis or static analysis or automated static analysis? If we're using all these techniques to test the system comprehensively, why do force still occur? And then you sit back and think, well, mm, for a small, tiny system, 10 lines of code, 20 lines of code, it is easy for me to comprehensively test it using the framework that we've just looked at. But, but, sometimes we're building a system of about 4 million lines of code. Somebody says to me, this is 4 million lines of code, I believe them. Windows XP is 50 million lines of code. How many lines of code in Windows Vista B? So size of the system is probably the reasons why the force that okay and that leads to system failures really to occur. Because what I cannot in a position, I cannot comprehensively test a program of four million lines of code. Neither can I comprehensively test a program of 50 million lines of code. Why can't I? Because of the ramifications. I can test them for the various common forms that I expect. I can test them for some of the, what do you call it, um, static, um, using static analysis. I can test them for some of the environmental forms that may occur. But because there are, there are permutations, different permutations, a line of 200, a program of 200 lines of code would probably have about 750,000 possible paths through it. How am I going to be able to test all the 750,000 conditions? Right? So, this is this one from uh, um, a research done by Martin Thomas and Praxis, who said that typically you take a program, you write a program with 200 lines of code. Based on the control algorithm, you will probably have an excess of 75,000 lines of um, possible path through which that program can take. Can you exhaustively and comprehensively test all this? No. So, for example, if 200 lines of code could lead to 750,000 paths, possible paths, through that particular program, then to what extent, how many possible paths are there through Windows XP, which we say is 50 million lines of code? Right? So then you begin to understand the problems that we've got here when we talk about forms and texting and so on and so forth. Right. So in effect, what you're taking away from here is the fact that it is impossible to test all the various scenarios. And this is where you run into trouble. Because the various scenarios that you can think of are the scenarios that actually come up when the program is in operation at or in the field, as we call it, when the user is actually using it. Nobody ever thought of Y2K, did they? Nobody ever thought of Y2K until the millennium was approaching and something was happening for solid. This is going to cause a lot of problems, right? By the way, programs that were written with that six character thing, thing and nobody ever thought that. Very soon we would reach a year whereby. Uh, the year 2000 would be denoted as 00, and that would take us back to where we began and probably set off missiles all over the world. Right. So we looked at size and complexity. Design the program, the lines of code physically would make it difficult for us to test it, and the complexity in terms of the path through the program. 
okay? You look at cyclomatic complexity, the number of linearly independent paths through the program, and that is exponentially. It grows, in, it grows exponentially for the number of, sorry, lines of code that you write, and number of um, what you call different paths, linearly independent paths through the program. If you have a number of linearly independent paths through the program that is growing exponentially by the size and by the structure of the code that you're writing, then your testing scenarios would have to be comprehensive in order to catch all the possible scenarios. So this makes it impossible to, to end up with three uh, or four tree software. Now, despite all these things, we're not going to let the sit there. Because we have to have a strategy for making sure that we are in a position to grab hold of the situation. How many years ago was it? Maybe 20 years ago? We had um, a European space project called Area 5. And all the countries in Europe got together. And it was, it was actually to launch um, a space pair. Okay? <laughs> spent about half, depending on who you speak to, spent about half a billion dollars on this project and five minutes or five actually five seconds or something to launch in that particular space um, uh, um, whatever it is space shuttle whatever it is it blew up it blew up primarily because of a software failure so half a billion dollars worth of kit goes up in smoke primarily because of the software failure so in effect what we're trying to say is the fact that, the fact that software folks can pose a lot of money Right? When the space shuttle was trying to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere some five years ago, I think, and it suddenly caught fire and killed all the seven astronauts, people were in a hurry to point out that the fault was in the software failure. There was something to do with the plates that they had on, the, what do you call it, on the space shuttle. Okay? Because if it had been a software failure, that would have been another disastrous um, 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 event for us as software engineers. And people would say, well, what's the point in giving all these positions to software engineers? Why are we giving, uh, taking away manual dexterity and giving all these publications to software engineers? But an airman is trying to land. Somebody said this to me, a pilot friend of mine. He goes to me, you know what? The only time I actually touch Anything manually with an air aircraft is during takeoff and during landing. After that, it's all autopilot. I don't know whether that's, that's true or not. So that's scarcely, that's the way he's in the plane next time. And I, he, just, he, he just picked me up from the airport. I come back from Trinidad and he picked me up from the airport and I was like saying, oh, it was a very smooth landing. And he goes, that must be the autopilot. I said, why? He goes, oh, well, sometimes we take off, we speak to you, and then we take off, and then we put it on autopilot. And sometimes when we're landing, and we think the weather conditions are good, even the autopilot has to land it. So some piece of software is controlling everything that I do 40,000 feet up in the air. What happens if something goes wrong? We can't afford, we can't afford to, to have um, reliability lapses here. So you could understand how, how important these things are. Now, now, now. We'll talk about ripple effect, and I'll say to you, ripple effect is when you fix um, a fault in a particular program, and you end up, without reading it, injecting more faults into that particular program. And last week we looked at some experiments that showed that in the best of cases, it will take you a very long time to find one fault, and in the worst of cases, it will take you even longer 
and you end up injecting more folks into that program. So the notion of ripple effects is also there in the sense that knowing what faults we can find, knowing what the nature of these faults are, we are still going to end up injecting more faults into the system that we built. Now, in order to, 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 to overcome the whole process of the ripple effects, we do regression testing, as you guys do. When you fix a particular fault in a module or in a component of the piece of software that you've written, then you must go back and retest all the other components that rely on that particular module or that component of software that you've written. Okay? So that means that the effort involved in testing software becomes larger and greater and so on and so forth. Now, despite all this, despite all this, the profile changes. Okay? The more you use a piece of software, the more force that you find, or the more force that you find in the field, and therefore the more reliable that piece of software becomes. It goes without saying. But that counters what we said about Lehman's laws, isn't it? If we're using a piece of software, and we're not evolving it, and we're hoping that we're using it exhaustively, then when we find forms, we fix them, and then the piece of software stays in that particular state. People will say to you that Unix is very reliable, primarily because it's been used for a very long time, and all the operational faults have been found, and most of the operational faults have been repaired, and that is why Unix is probably a lot more reliable than, than all the Microsoft products. I'm not, I'm not going to vouch for it. I don't want to be sued by Microsoft. Right. So, these are the problems that we have. What do we do? Despite all these problems, we still have to be able to build dependable systems. There is no point in us being here in the business of calling ourselves software engineers if the systems that we build are not dependable. But we are also aware of the inherent problems with the system that we build in terms of the manifestation of those forms. So we have to build systems that are reliable, secure, and safe. I want to build a system that doesn't fail. I also want to build a system that is secure in the, in the sense of the fact that it can be hacked into, so my details can be taken and used against me, also that somebody wouldn't, wouldn't, in effect, use my details to make me bankrupt. I also want to build a system that is safe, in the sense that if I'm building a system that is running an aircraft, I want it to be safe, I want the reliability element to make, to, to make it safe. If I'm building a system that is dispensing medicines to terminally ill patients in, in I want it to dispense just the right amount of medicine and not kill people. And because we need to do all these things, we have to be able to anticipate and plan for how we find the focus. And this is where we come into. So I'm gradually taking you to a position where I understand why we have to be using things like Godzilla. We have to be able to anticipate and plan for focus. I'm going to build a system. I'm not going to lie to myself and say to myself, I've got the best software engineers in the world. And so this system is going to be completely reliable. It's going to have no faults at all because operationally systems will definitely have faults, right? And I want to be able to anticipate and plan for the faults and detect those faults and remove them very early because Martin Thomas did some research which showed that the fault correction cost increases tenfold when you move from one stage to the next. Okay, if at the specification stage I have identified that I can't really put the algorithm right, it will cause several faults. If at 
then the mutation state, okay, at the time that I've coded and testing it, I have identified a fault. If I repair it, then fair enough. If I don't repair that particular fault and I go on to deploy that system, install it, the cost of that system of repairing that particular fault will be ten times what it was if I had fixed it in the stage before. And that puts us that puts that whole what do you call it um, pressure on us to try anticipate faults and get rid of them. So we tend to use a lot of um, what do you call it um, model checking, whereby we have an idea of what um, the typical force to look out for are, and then we check thoroughly test the program through this particular framework. We also use techniques like version programming. Version programming is where we have a specification for a particular um, system that we want to build, and we build it independently. Two different sets of programmers build that particular system independently. The notion here is the fact that two different sets of programmers building that particular system of the same functionality differently would not make the same identical mistakes. So by doing that, when they are testing their projects or their little system and finding faults, the type of faults that they find will be the same type of faults that we'll be looking at in our system. And similarly, our system would also test a new program, find faults in it, and then the other version would use that particular type of faults that it found to test the system. In the sense that if you do version programming, you have two or three or whatever different versions of the same particular system being built, and the various independent ones building those faults, those systems will find different faults, and those different forward profiles will be used to test the system in order to eliminate all possible faults. Make sense? And so that is cost a lot. It costs a lot, but it, 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 it will cost a lot of money. But in a way, what you guys are doing in the last with David is similar to that. Yeah. And open source allows us to do it. So in a sense, these are some of the benefits of open source <laughs> systems development. Okay, open source allows us to do it. It, it means we've got two thousand eyes looking the same, the same, the same system. Okay, it costs a lot of money, and sometimes people say, "Well, if I'm building a system, I'm criticizing my own point here, but bear with me. If I'm building a system and it's got the same functionality, then it's highly likely that some of the four profiles will be identical. So I'm wasting a lot of money. Well, in all these cases, there are pros and cons to it." Okay? And because the faults that we're looking at are operational faults, the faults that occur within the deployment of the system, then it's highly likely that, yes, we will find different profiles of faults within different sections of the systems that we build. How do you get between the best of the four or five minutes? You use a fault, you use a fault uh, profile to build a model for testing the entire new system. So in the, in the end, you, you end up merging the particular system. So you use a fault profile. So in a way, it's almost like an experiment. Okay, I'm going to build a system based on these um, um, specifications to deliver this functionality. But the forward profile from the guys in team A, the forward profile from the guys in team B, means that I make the entire forward profile, and these are the folds that I'm testing the system against. <coughs> and sometimes, a fault will occur in relation to the operational environment. How am I using that particular system? <coughs> The same way that you and I would use the cash machine here in the UK will be different from the way people would probably use that cash machine if they're doing advanced banking, if they're uh, customers who, on a daily basis, take the payments. 
they're taken from their job and put money into other bank accounts to make sure that they're paid interest and withdraw the money the next day. Okay? Different operational environments would spring up different folks. So here what we say is different operational environments would spring up different system failures and so the whole gamut of things that we have to look out for uh, we have, uh, first we have to find fault in every four system and then we have to test all those four systems again for all the four systems. You have to find faults in the two different versions or four different versions or eight different versions and then help you to anticipate the type of faults that the delivery of this functionality will, will, will give you. And then if you have to put a system together eventually, make sure that the false profile that you've established is used to test the entire system. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of effort, it's not, it's not easy. So we're hoping that when you guys live here, or when you do a master's, a master's project, or when you come back to do a PhD, that's with me. These are some of the strategies or frameworks that you develop. Okay, I'll pick on you. Common force. Great, this is a bit old. I'm sorry, you have to forgive me for some of my references. They are old because uh, I'm probably old. And a lot of my research was done a long time ago. But it doesn't mean that you can't go out there and find new references to come back when I'm saying. Nearly uh, over 30 years ago, I think, is it 30 or not? 85 months, I don't know. 24 years, fantastic. 24 years ago, Greg did some research. And he, he came out and said, well, for every thousand lines of code, the common fault, you are likely to find one fault. Now, Shaila the figure, who is very prominent in this particular area. She's written a book on software metrics in Norman Fenton. So, a similar experiment 12 years later, and said, well, actually, we deleted ourselves. You would find between 6 and 34 thousand lines of code. Okay? So, if we go back to a piece of software that is 1 million lines of code, then what we're saying is the fact that at the point of delivery, and this is points, this is point of delivery for at the point of delivery, it would have between 6,000 and 30,000 folds. 6,000 and 30,000 folds in a million lines of code at the point of delivery. And then somebody says to you that Windows XP is, what, um, 50 million lines of code. Then how many, how many folds are there in Windows XP or Windows Vista that we haven't found yet? And every day we use Windows XP, and every day we use Vista, and every day it crashes on us, we know that there are probably 2 million lines, 2 million folds in that particular system. But you don't have to go against that, because you see. Okay? So that, that is what, that's where we sit. I mean, we know this, and so it doesn't surprise us. But you go to a little insurance firm, and there's a group of guys and you know, girls working away, and they happily working away, and the system crashes, and they say, oh, I can't believe the system crashed. I'm like, of course it would crash. What do you, what do you expect? Somebody says to you, if you build a car, you know what to drive a car. I used to work in Nissan, and I used to write programs for Nissan to schedule uh, parts to the assembly line. And some of the programs we wrote, and sometimes some of the programs we wrote after we moved out on the first midnight were frightening. And so I would never buy Nissan. This is the one I had done in, 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 uh, in that company, sorry, that's not a joke. Okay? So, you look at this and you think, what are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, now, it, it all boils down to the fact that human beings, we make mistakes. But, but, this shouldn't depress you. It isn't all over yet, okay? Because of the way we're doing things now, and because of the way we're developing things now, 
we intend to say whereby we are managing the force better. So, back to what I said. These are some of the common faults. These faults are easy. We can find them. Data faults, okay? Arrow boundaries. Control faults, unreachable code, and all that stuff. The interface faults, whereby there's a mismatch between the parameter you're trying to pass and the module that is receiving that parameter and whatever allocation module is made for it. And unassigned pointers and all that. Common faults. But there are other types of faults, okay? Now, this, read this or take this as just a bit of academic knowledge. Okay. Somebody did some research and came up with classification of faults. Then types, the names that we've given them don't dwell too much on them. But there are faults that are constant, reproducible, relatively easy to fix. Those are the faults that we looked at earlier. Okay? The input output faults, unreachable code, all that stuff. And he called them Galbert faults. Then there are faults, there are faults that you would see, the Heisenberg faults. Okay, you see, that's a fault. The next time you run a particular system, that fault doesn't occur anymore. It disappears. Or it will occur in a different set of conditions, different set of scenarios. It's like, see me, see me now, you don't see me, or whatever the expression is. Okay? And then there are faults that would only manifest when somebody realizes it. Nobody ever thought of the fact that Y2K would be a problem until we started, until sometime, I think, late, late 80s, early 90s, when we realized that, well, that particular date format is going to cause a problem. And this falls because of shorting back forward. Okay? And what will be accounted inconsistent output? Inconsistent output will be a force that probably disappears or manifests differently. So inconsistent output. It doesn't give the same thing all the time. And then there are some complex and obscure faults, which the origin of which you can never ever determine. So these are faults that you can never plan happily against. And these he called the Mandelberg faults. Now, from where you sit and from the point of view of this particular lecture, what you should say and what you should you should take from this is the fact that if I am having to put together a framework to allow me to comprehensively and exhaustively test the system that I'm building, then I should be in a position to at least be in a position to catch all the public faults, the constant, reproducible, the relatively easy to fix faults. Okay? I'm also going to come across faults which will appear once or disappear next or appear once in one condition and then manifest itself differently in another condition. I should make provision for somebody clever people, wonderful group of testers, to be able to identify some of the shortening back faults. But, I should never rest on my laurels, because there are bound to be Mandelbeck faults which I will never ever find. Okay, and even if I find them, I will not be able to understand why those faults are occurring. There are reasons why Vista crashes all the time, and there are people in Seattle, Silicon Valley, who still can't find out why those, those, those uh, crashes or outages are okay. On the basis of this, especially this Mandelberg fault, you would have to understand that there are faults that will stay in your system permanently. You could never eradicate them. So trying to get fault-free software is a pipe dream. And there are faults that will occur on occasion, okay? And that's the good fault that you see them here, you don't see them. You see them here today, tomorrow they're gone. And then there are faults. <coughs> 
that would occur in different sort of circumstances. Okay, four simple examples. The four that would occur based on and since you the Libya, Libya, okay, if I have a system, but I have the Libya, there's a four that would occur based on that particular every four years. Effect. Okay. And this is the duration of force. So there are force that will still occur differently. Okay. There are force that will occur differently. And then there are force that wouldn't always occur in the same sort of circumstances. Now, from what I said, those are probably the most dangerous force you have to work against. Because every time you change something, it's changing something else. It manifests itself in something else. Okay. But in all this, we have hope. We have hope because the way we're doing software here now, it's such that we have understood, I've given you the bad news, all the bad news. We've understood the nature of how force manifests, we've understood the profile of force, we've understood the difficulty of force. And so, with things like Botzilla, what we're trying to do is to collect information about force and the systems that we're currently building, the whole time of systems that we're building, so that people like you, software engineers, who will decide that you don't want to be paid that hundred thousand pounds a year but would want to come and do a PhD with you for eight thousand pounds a year. We'll spend all your energies trying to devise a comprehensive strategy for um, finding out uh, eradicating, reducing these force. Sullivan and Chilarech did this some time ago, I think for five years between eight five and something like that. A long time ago. Alright? And what they were interested in were not the forms that we find during testing, but actually some of the forms that occur when a system has actually been deployed in the workplace. So they, they, have, they did field studies. And I don't think you've had the opportunity to read this article because I already posted the slides last night. But these are the findings in the sense that some of the faults, or 20% of the faults, the highest percentage, were buffer overflow faults. Okay? System so program is reading and read, it reads past the buffer that you've set it to. 19% of the faults were to do with the use of deallocated memory. A program, a modular program, gives up a bit of memory that is used and it gives it up. That memory gets reallocated to somebody else. It comes back and starts or writing back to that particular memory where it has already given up. Force to do with corrupt pointer, okay? A pointer, what would address of a place in memory is actually corrupt, okay? So the, the address is wrong and it comes, the program comes back and writes a reads to that particular address in memory. And force to do with the data structure mismatches I was telling you about earlier on. The structure of the data or the parameter that you're trying to pass has changed. You either increase the bits or you define the bytes differently or a bit differently. And secondly, all the constituents or the dependent modules that use that particular variable that you're passing have not been adequately restructured as well. And so you have a mismatch of this. And those form about 12% of the force. Now, these are findings from it. These are, these are findings from what? The middle two may not be applicable for Java, but you might realize this article was 1991, a long time ago. It's from C++, I think. C++, do you use that on C++? Have you read the article? No, no, no. 
Fantastic. Now, five years of IPO crisis reports. Look at this. In all these goals, something triggers them. Something will trigger these goals. Okay? So if you hadn't used if you hadn't used the operational profile of you, the operational profile is what triggers these forms. So the the things that trigger these forms are things with boundary conditions. Okay, like someone is trying to pass, some this man gives a request a program and a request of the program and the variable size is zero. Okay? Or bad recovery code. The program has crashed, and whenever that program crashes, you know the outage is very expensive. So you have a recovery program to actually start up the program again. So you know, like your car breaks down, recovery car comes and picks you up, and once the recovery car is picking you up to the to the garage, that recovery car also breaks down. Okay? So recovery code. And then bug patches. Okay, we have little little patches to help help us fix programs. And some of the patches that we're using to help us fix the programs themselves have bugs in them. And then sometimes they use a third party code. So this, in a way, tells you that operational profile is what sometimes triggers of some of these rules. So if you are within a particular system, a user environment, whereby there is a preponderance of some of these triggers, then you are bound to have certain force manifesting themselves based on the kind of triggers that there are there. Okay? So the way our problems are compounded. We don't only have the problem to do with the nature of the force that will occur, we also have the problem to do with the nature of the triggers that will make those force occur. If I didn't have problems with my primary conditions, then those 24% of the system failures or the outages wouldn't have occurred. Okay? And, and, and that, if I weren't using third party code, then probably that 6% of the system outages wouldn't have occurred. And so, what you do, this is an old piece of research, what you do now, because we're using open source software, and because you, you have Godzilla that collects information on all the projects for open source software, you can, you can also sit back and analyze, take one version of something in Eclipse, okay? And look at the back profile over five years, and come up with typical type of force that I found, and the sort of things that have triggered them. So in a way, what you're trying to do is you're going to help us strategize, put together a strategy for reducing the degree or the level of outage, i.e. system failures that we have. Now this is done in 1991, 18 years ago, you should do Now, required reading. Perry Dwayne, okay, and actually Dwayne Perry, that's the name, and Carol Starrick. I've got an article called Software Force in the Wars in a Large Real Time System. It was written a long time ago, but it's a classic article, okay, and that article, in a way, put into on you with the strategy that you need. You need to be in a position to predict system reliability based on one, the type of force that the system that you're building would have inherent in it, and also the type of conditions that will help you trigger those forces. So, if it sounds all matched up and it sounds like a conversation, it sounds like um, <laughs> um, 
stream of consciousness, what I'm trying to say in this particular lecture is that the complex problem we have with faults, and the complex problem we have with the fact that the faults that we know, the common faults which we have already identified, could be easily eradicated, but there are also faults that tend to manifest when we begin to use a particular system and they manifest themselves in operation and they manifest themselves under different circumstances and under different environmental conditions and also depending upon various operational profiles. And so if you have to put together a strategy or framework for working or for helping us to reduce, to improve system reliability, reduce system outage, reduce failures, then this is how big your task is. Right. And read the article by Perry and Stark, and that will probably put you in a better framework for doing that. Now, when you come to look at Bazilla in the practicals, if you understand when you come to the Bazilla in the practicals, Bazilla will give you a big wealth, a huge wealth of information as to faults, fault data that have been collected on an open source project, and that will in a way shape your mind as to what we're asking you to do here. And out of this will probably come the final year project. Last year, two people did the final year project on the predictability of um, system reliability based on four profiles. And they use Godzilla. So think about it if you have your own the final year project or your master's project. In the practicals, this is the required reading. You have to read this because, like you always know, the required reading means that I could plug something from Perry and Stack. Suggested reading, read anything by Elaine Wilka, or Benka, that's her name. She is a guru on fault systems, reliability, prediction forms, and so on and so forth. In the practical, you'll be using Bugzilla. If you're not familiar with Bugzilla, have a look at Bugzilla. 